Well, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> I'd like to welcome each one tuning in online with us this morning. It is a tremendous privilege to be able to share with you from the Word of God. And we have a lot of ground to cover this morning, so make sure you get yourselves comfortable. So what I'd like to talk about this morning is the body and bride of Christ, the church. Those of us who have repented of our sins and put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, and we belong to him, we are part of his body, we are part of his church, we are part of his bride. And what an amazing and humbling privilege that it is to belong to Christ, to be part of his body, to be part of his bride, to be part of his church, and all that that entails. We are truly blessed with blessings that go far beyond this life. So before we go any further, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look into it, Lord, and what your word has to say about your church, your body, and your bride. Lord, we thank you that you have redeemed us, you have bought us with your precious blood, as we remembered this morning. Lord, we pray that if there are any that are watching this, that don't know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, Lord, that you would stir their hearts, that you would convict them by the power of the gospel. Lord, bring them to repentance and faith in Christ alone. Lord, I pray that you would guide and direct my words as we go through these truths this morning. Lord, may everything be glorifying and honoring to you. We just commit this time to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've entitled my message for this morning, the body and bride of Christ. Now, the church is something that the Lord has really been burdening my heart with over the past year, and even more intensely over the past few months, to really know what the church is all about, his design for it, and to be faithful to serve in it. Now, I'm ashamed to admit that for a large part of my Christian life, I really wasn't that fired up about the church. For some of those years, I wasn't even a part of, of a local assembly or gathering. But the Lord has been showing me how vital his church is, and that is what I want to share with you this morning. Now, obviously, we're not going to have time to cover every aspect of the church in detail. We would be here all day and, and beyond. But what I want to endeavor to do is to whet your appetite to dig deeper into some of these truths on your own and, and in your own studies and to encourage you to, to do that as a very worthwhile study. The, the doctrines of the church are known as ecclesiology, all the doctrines that surround the church and, and how God has revealed that to us through his word. Now, if you'd like to grab something to write with, whether that's a pen and paper or your phone or whatever you like to use, I'm going to give verses along the way that we won't have time to really dig into in detail but again, you can study it on your own, and I know that you will f find a tremendous blessing in doing that. So the three main questions that I want to take a look at this morning is, number one, who is the head of the church? Number two, what is the church? And number three, what is the church called to do? So we'll start with, number one, who is the head of the church? Now, if you had no previous biblical knowledge, you could probably surmise by what I've said already that Christ is the head of the church, and you would be correct. 
The church is his body, his bride, and without him, there would be no church. Without him, we would have no hope, and we would still be dead in our sins. But what does that truly mean for Christ to be the head of his church? How do we know that that's true? Well, if you'd like to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, we'll take a look at verses 13 to 20. This is one of my favorite passages on the preeminence and the headship of Christ. And actually, we took a look at this this morning in, in the breaking of bread. It's, uh, it's one of those passages that just never grows old. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 20, starting at verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, being Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So we see very clearly in verse 18 that Christ is the head of the body, the church. And we also see many other profound truths here about Christ. In verse 15, he is deity, he is God, he is the preeminent one over all creation. In verse 16, we see that he created all things, both the things that we see and the things that we don't see. He created all things for himself and for his glory. That's the purpose, for his glory. In verse 17, he is eternally existent. He had no beginning. He has no end. He sustains all creation in perfect balance and literally holds everything together by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3. And that brings us back to our key verse in verse 18, which we'll come back to again in a minute. In verse 19, we see that it pleased the Father for all the divine power, attributes, and authority to dwell in Christ. In verse 20, we have the gospel. Sinners are reconciled to God through Christ by his precious blood shed on the cross. By his death and resurrection, we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ alone and his finished work on the cross. And we belong to him. Then and only then, are we made a part of his church? Then and only then can we be forgiven of sins and be made right with God. Then and only then are we rescued from eternal punishment and given eternal life in his kingdom. So let's come back to our key verse at verse 18. So it's very clear here that Christ is the head of the body, the church. And we see that clearly throughout the rest of scripture as well. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, it says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
So what does it mean for Christ to be the head of the church? Well, if we take the picture given here of, of a head and a body, and we look at our own bodies, it becomes pretty clear. My head decides what the rest of my body is going to do. So if my body tells my legs to walk, well, I'm going to walk. If my body tells my hand to wave, well, I'm going to wave. It, it does whatever my head tells it to do. My body gets to, to, to decide how and when my body functions and for what purpose. It has complete authority over my body as far as the operation of it. Without my head, my body would have no life. If you remove the head, you end life. So in the same way, Christ has complete authority over the church. He decides how and when it functions and for what purpose. He is the source of its life and direction. So we'll take a look a little later at how Christ has directed his body to function, but for now I want to stay zeroed in on his headship. So if you'd like to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to take a look at verses 23 to 30. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 to 30. Starting at verse 23. For the head of the wife, for, sorry, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. So in verse 23, we clearly see again that Christ is the head of the church. It's an inescapable truth in scripture that we see repeated over and over again. And then we have the gospel here again. He is the savior of the body. In verse 24, we see that the church is to be subject to Christ as head, just as our bodies are subject to our heads, just as we just talked about, so is the church to be subject to Christ in everything. In verse 25, we see the great love that Christ has for his church, which was demonstrated by him giving himself for her. In verse 26 and 27, we read about the process of Christ sanctifying his church, his bride, to present her without spot or wrinkle, holy and blameless before him. Now, this is why we need to take holiness and purity in the church very seriously. The scriptural accuracy of the doctrines that we preach, the content of the songs that we sing and where they come from, dealing with sin in the church, being separate from the world. The church should not look like the rest of the world. Christ takes the purity of his bride very seriously, and therefore, so should we. And then in verse 28 to 30, we read again of the love, the cherishing, the nourishing that Christ has for his church. And that we, being members of that body, we are the recipients of that love and that cherishing and that nourishing. What a privilege. 
Now, I've obviously completely glossed over all the references to husbands and wives throughout this passage just for the sake of time, but I encourage you to go back through this and study it on your own and how these profound truths of of the relationship of Christ and his church apply to our marriages and how our marriages are supposed to be a picture of Christ and the church, and that is a very tall order. So let's sum up what it means for Christ to be head of his church. So by being head, he has complete and absolute authority over every aspect of the church. He is also the source of its life. It's his body. It's his bride. It belongs to him, and he purchased it with his own blood. It is inseparable from him. Now, this makes sense because, as we've also seen, he has complete and absolute authority over all creation. He made and sustains everything. Everything belongs to him. He is the preeminent one. So there is no authority in the church except Christ alone. Now, he delegates authority within the confines of local assemblies or gatherings through elders, but he is still the supreme authority. They are under shepherds, under the authority of the chief shepherd, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. So this means that no person or group of persons has authority over the church. Christ alone has authority over his body and his bride. And we as members of it, we are to be subject to him to obey what he has commanded for his church. So that brings us to the second question, and that is, what is the church? So we know who the head of the church is now, but what does the church look like? What what is it? Well, the word church that we see in our English Bibles is translated from the Greek word ekklesia. Now, ekklesia means a gathering or an assembly of people or a called out group of people. So in our context, that gathering, that assembly, that that group of called out people is the church, the body and bride of Christ. So we saw in Ephesians chapter 5 that picture given of, of Christ and his bride. We also see that in 2 Corinthians and Revelation where the church is referred to as his bride. So the body and bride of Christ is made up of individual members. Those individual members, as I said earlier, are those of us who have put our faith and our trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and we belong to him. We're part of his body. We're brought into his body. Now for clarity... Here's a list of some things that the church is not. The church is not a building. The church is not an organization. It's not an institution. It's not a social club. It's not a place you come for entertainment or to have your uh, or to earn your way to heaven. It's not a structure full of seats that simply need warming. And the church is not a faith gathering. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. The church is a living organism. It's a living body. It's made up of individual members or body parts that each have an individual function, just as our bodies do. So our human bodies are the vehicle that we express ourselves through. So you observe what I'm doing or you hear what I'm saying by watching or listening to my body, just as you are right now. So in the same way, The Lord Jesus has chosen to express himself in this age through his body, through the church, through us. 
So the world today hears the gospel preached and the truth proclaimed through his body. It sees his love and kindness and compassion shown in practical ways through his body. Christ has chosen to express himself to the world around us through the church, through his body, through us. Now, when we talk about the church, there is one church, the, the church universal, which is all believers past, present, and future. The bride that Christ will present himself without spot or wrinkle, as we read in Ephesians chapter 5. And then there is the local church, or the, the local expression of the church universal. So each individual assembly or gathering of true Christians, an example of that would be the assembly here at Northbrook. So that is to be a miniature version of the church universal. Now, if you'd like to turn with me to Romans chapter 12, we're going to take a look at verses 1 to 6. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another." Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Now the therefore in verse 1 is there to refer back to what Brother John read last week in his message at the end of Romans chapter 11. So we'll quickly read that just to refresh our memories because that is an excellent passage as well. So where John read last week, Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So in light of the profound truth of who God is, we are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which means giving ourselves completely to the Lord in every aspect of our lives. In verse 2, we see, do not be conformed to this world, or a better translation of world is age, which refers to the system of beliefs and values, the spirit of this age. Now, I submit to you that the dominant spirit of this age that we're in right now is the religion of public health, being told to sacrifice everything at the altar of physical health with complete disregard for spiritual health and the reality of who God is and what he has commanded us to do. You can see Romans chapter 1 for a very accurate description of the overall spirit of this age that we're in right now. 
So we are not to be conformed to the spirit of this age, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So how do we renew our minds? We do that by filling it with God's word, meditating on these profound truths of who Christ is and being obedient to what he has called us to do in the light of the reality of who he is. So again, verses 4 to 6, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Verse 6, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So our bodies have many members or parts, and they all have different functions, as as we've talked about, but it's all one body. So as we read here, it's the same in the body of Christ. We're, We're many members, but we make up one cohesive body. We are one with Christ, and we are one with one another. Now, each of us has different gifts to use within that body, which benefit the other members of the body, build the body up, and we'll talk more about that uh, when we look at what the church is called to do, and we'll pick up here in verse 6 where we left off. Now, looking at this passage in Romans 12, there is so much more richness to be drawn out in this passage, and the previous passages for that matter as well. So again, I would encourage you to go back and study these on your own time in more depth than we had time to study today, as I was going through and and preparing this and just seeing the the vast richness in, in these passages. But again, for the sake of time, we just can't dive completely into those. Now, you can also jot down 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's an excellent chapter explaining the different parts of the body and their dependence on one another and how we are one in Christ. Another great study there. So I would quickly like to quickly take a look at two more passages to wrap up our look at what the church is. So I'll quickly read through these two passages. Both of them is Paul writing. Uh, The first one is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was with accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. The second passage is 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 to 15. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So again, so much richness here to go back and study on your own, but the two main truths that I want you to grasp from these two passages that we just read are number one, from Ephesians chapter 3, that God has made known to the angels his manifold wisdom and sovereign plan of salvation through the church. The church is vital. And number two, from 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
that the church of the living God is the pillar and support of the truth. Now, pillars are used to support things, but they were also used to post notices on. So the church is the proclaimer, the upholder, the support of the truth of God's word. And this brings us back to what I said earlier, that the church is not a faith gathering. The true body of Christ is completely unique and unparalleled. The church is exclusively the pillar and support of absolute truth in this world, the truth of God's word. He is our head, and he is the creator and sustainer of all things. We are a unique and called out and chosen group of people, and that is all by God's grace. That has nothing to do with us. That is all of him. We are the body and the bride of Christ. So we need to reject this idea that we are just another faith gathering. We are the body and bride of Christ, his church. We are unique and we need to stand as such, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. And that he is our head, the ruler and creator of all things, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So every faith gathering or religion out there that is not the true body of Christ, it is illegitimate and a lie from Satan, and it ends in eternal destruction. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12, salvation is in Christ alone. So that brings us to our third and final question. What is the church called to do? So we know who our head is, and we know who we are as the church, but what is the church called to do? What, what is our action? The short answer is to glorify God. If you want to sum it all up in a very short answer, it's to glorify God. But Christ has set out specifics in his word for how he wants his body and the individual members of that body to function and operate. So for this section, we'll focus on the local gathering or assembly of the church. Like I mentioned earlier, it's supposed to be a miniature version of the church universal, a local expression of the church universal. So to start, we'll pick up uh, in Romans chapter 12, where we left off. So we read in verses 1 to 6 about the individual members of the body, and how they all have different functions, and that they have different gifts to serve within the body. So we'll read in verses 6 to 13 and take a look at what some of those gifts are. So Romans chapter 12, verses 6 to 13. If you'd like to follow along, that's where we'll be. So starting at verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, 
contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. So in verse 6 to 8, we have some gifts listed here that the Spirit gives the members of the body to exercise, as, as we've been talking about. So the first one we have here is prophecy, which doesn't apply today. Uh, we have service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, and mercy. There is also faith, discernment, administration, shepherding, and evangelism that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. So again, I would encourage you to go back and do your own study on the to- this topic of, of spiritual gifts. It's another very worthwhile uh, study to do. If you'd like to jot down uh, some, some chapters to uh, include in your study, you can write down Romans chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as well as Ephesians chapter 4. But the takeaway for right now is we are to know what spiritual gifts that we've been given, we are to recognize those and know what they are, and we are to use those gifts as part of the body. But what's the purpose of using our gifts? Well, number one is to glorify Christ the head. Number two, to build up the body. And number three, to encourage and to stimulate one another. And then when we look at verses 9 to 13, we see some really practical commands for the body of Christ. So we'll go back at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. So that's a really practical list of things to do, to be actively doing. And that brings us to the one another's the things that we are to do for and to one another. Now, we saw two of them in the verses that we just read. Uh, One of them was to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, and the other one is to give preference to one another in honor. And I'll quickly go through a list of a few more that we find elsewhere in Scripture. So, elsewhere in Scripture we find, and this is not a comprehensive list, but, but some of them, we are to love one another. We are to care for one another. Comfort one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, speak or sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, submit to one another, bear with and forgive one another, encourage one another, do good to one another, stir one another up to love and good works. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now this one this one kind of stood out to me because Obviously, we don't normally go around in our culture kissing each other, unless we're married to that person. Um, But the idea here is it's conveying, showing physical affection. So whether that's a hug or a handshake or however we show affection to each other, we are to do that. We're not to socially distance from each other. We are to show each other affection. And then we go on to show hospitality to one another, confess your sins to one another, and then a huge one. We are to pray for one another. We have to be in prayer for one another. That is so important and vital. 
And as I mentioned, this is not even a complete list. There's many more throughout Scripture. I just kind of grabbed some of, of, of the highlights. So I would encourage you again to take your favorite Bible app and do a search for one another. And you can do a study on the complete list. And then take action. Go through this list and seek to actively do these things for one another. And if you're going to do that, make sure you search uh, different translations of the Bible because not all translations necessarily have the words one another in it in the list of one another. So search multiple versions if you're going to do that study. So for the sake of time, I'm going to quickly go through a few more commands for the church, kind of rapid fire. Now again, it's not a complete list or a comprehensive study, but again, I pray that it whets your appetite. And just before we get into this list, uh, I'm going to give you a few more passages that you can write down if you're interested. The first one is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. And the last one, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. These are all excellent passages that I wanted to include in this message, but again, there's just not enough time. So if you look these up, it further expands on what we've been talking about and adds more to it. So again, it would be a blessing to you, I know, if, if you do a study and dig into this for yourself. So in James chapter 5, verses 14, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So again, we are not to distance or isolate ourselves from the sick. We are to pray over them and care for them. In James chapter 1, verse 27, it says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And we also see that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and it's expanded on there. So we are to care for widows and orphans, those that can't care for themselves. We could also include in that list the elderly or the physically disabled, people that need our help and our care. We are to visit them and to come alongside them and help them in practical ways. Now in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in Mark 16, verse 15, it says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. So the body is to go. We are to go out into all the world and to preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize, and teach the word of God. We are to take action and we are to go. Now it's so encouraging to see the Friday night downtown ministry here at Northbrook faithful members of the body going out and fulfilling the Great Commission, going outside of, of the walls of the church building and preaching the gospel. That is such an encouragement and such a blessing to see that ministry. Now, we'll go through a list here um, a little bit faster. 
of things that the church is to do. So we are to come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, as commanded in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are to be obedient to the ordinance of baptism, as we just read in Matthew chapter 28. We are to practice church discipline as laid out in Scripture. And again, that comes back to the holiness and the purity of the church, which must be taken very seriously, because Christ takes it seriously. We are to sing together, Colossians chapter 3, verses 16, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. We are to have fellowship together, and we are to pray together, Acts 2, verse 42. <clears throat> we are to have local church leadership and oversight. Christ has appointed elders in the local church to fulfill that role. We are to submit to them as under-shepherds, as they submit to the chief shepherd, which is Christ. Now, for more study on this, you can see 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 5, and Hebrews chapter 13. Now, if you do a study in, in these passages that I just gave on elders, it will give you a much greater appreciation for the work that our elders do, for the tremendous responsibility that they have, and it should and will cause you to say thank you to our elders for what they do. It is a huge responsibility, and we owe them a lot of gratitude for what they do. We are also to appoint deacons, or servants, as the word means, to take care of the practical matters within the local church. For more study on that, <clears throat> you can again see 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Acts chapter 6. Same thing here. Study that, you, you get a greater appreciation for what our deacons do in serving in the local assembly, and again, it should cause you to say thank you. So thank you to our elders, and thank you to our deacons for what you do. So when it comes to the local church gathering, it is autonomous. It has its own self-contained leadership that answers directly to Christ. There's no governing body that governs over a group of local churches, or at least there shouldn't be. There's no pope or hierarchy of authority figures, and civil government has no authority or place in the church either. We simply have Christ as our head and the elders of each individual local gathering, and they answer directly to him. So that's a brief look at the things that we're called to do as the church, and more specifically as a local gathering. But do we do these things in isolation from each other or as a dismembered and scattered body? Absolutely not. We are to be united as one body as we are in Christ. In Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, if you'd like to turn with me there, we'll take a look at those verses. So Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. <coughs> Excuse me. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in verse 23, we see that we are to hold fast to the confession that Christ alone is our only hope. 
Because of who he is, his promises never fail. In verse 24, we see that we are to consider or discover how we are to stimulate or provoke one another to love and good deeds. Now, love is the root, and the good deeds are the fruit. Remember that. Love is the root. Good deeds are the fruit. In verse 25, we see that we are not to forsake our assembling together. Now, assembling together, or episunagoge in the Greek, means a complete collection, a gathering together in one place. So it's assembling all of the members of the local body of Christ. Why do we do that? To encourage one another and to stir one another up. How do we do that? How do we encourage one another and stir one another up? By corporate worship, prayer, and singing, the preaching of God's word, participating in the Lord's Supper together, and having fellowship. So what's the remedy for the discouragement that so many of us are feeling right now? It's gathering together as the body of Christ and fulfilling what he has called us to do. And as we see at the end of verse 25, we are to do this all the more or to a greater degree as we see the day drawing near. Now what's the day? The return of Christ, our great hope. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. That is our great hope, beloved. We will meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord for all eternity. What a glorious hope we have. When we look at the world around us, I believe that day is coming very soon. Time is drawing very short, beloved. And our brother John shared that with us a number of weeks back, looking at the the end times and the return of the Lord. I pray that Christ will find his bride ready, the bride that he purchased with his own blood, that he find us doing all that he has commanded us, not shrinking away in fear, not being conformed to the spirit of this age, but being faithful to his word, to his commands, no matter what the cost. For worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. Why should we gather? Because he is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you for your preeminence. Lord, that you are creator and sustainer of all things. Lord, you rule over all. You are all and in all. Lord, we thank you for the amazing truths of your church, Lord, your body, your bride. Lord, I pray that you would purify us and refine us and sanctify us, Lord, through, the, through your word, Lord, through trials and tribulation. Lord, we know that these things are what you use to strengthen us and, and focus us on you. Lord, I pray for your church that you would guide and direct, Lord, lead 
Make us faithful to the commands that you have commanded us. And Lord, again, I pray that if there are any listening to this that are not part of your body, your bride, your church, Lord, that you would convict them of their sin and their need for the Savior, and that Savior is Christ alone. Lord, we thank you once again for who you are. Lord, all you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.